This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Alright, good evening. It's nice to see some people in the room. Uh, good evening to everybody that's tuning in from far away. Um, I can't see you, but I'm glad you're joining us. Uh, this is one of our uh, Friday night lectures. Uh, the Brie is part of our, our summer series. Um, we've, we've been in the habit of announcing the next lecture. Uh, next Friday will be Marty Kais, who is lecturing on... Do you have your title? Yeah, basically, how women got the vote. In the United States, mm-hmm. the long, grueling battle for women's suffrage okay. in America. So it's going to be a little bit more of a history lesson than mm-hmm. usual. Quite a lot of history, a little bit of politics. Mm-hmm. Great. Looking forward to it. Tonight, uh, something quite different. Um, this is a um, an idea for a lecture that sort of occurred to me very, quite recently, and on a whim, I just put myself on the schedule to do this. And so, very much a work in progress. Um, I think there may be implications of some of the things I say that I haven't worked out yet, um, but still something that I think is, is worth engaging with anyway, and uh, maybe more, more clarity and more information can come out during the discussion time. But uh, my lecture is entitled... His own did not receive him, the literary theme of the unrecognized king. And we'll be looking at a theme, this theme, uh, which I, mostly just because of what I, you know, my, my, um, experience that comes up in Western literature. That's the theme of veiled power, uh, of concealed authority that's not recognized for what it is. That's sort of the, the theme. Often in stories, this takes the form of a king who, for reasons of his own, adopts a disguise and interacts with people of his own kingdom. Sometimes he's returning from a long journey and he's not recognized. Sometimes he's not a king, but some other person of rank or status or authority. In any case, uh, it's a widespread enough literary theme that it demands some attention, I think. And... The, there's just a few examples that I'll mention in passing, two examples that we'll look at more in more depth, but I'm sure there's many, many more that will occur to, to you all tonight. Uh, the point of this lecture is to draw the connection between this theme in literature and what the Bible teaches us about the coming of Jesus Christ, which, if it's true, is surely the most striking example of unrecognized kingship. Uh, he, through all... he through whom all things were made, comes to his own, and his own does not receive him. So, whenever you place a a biblical narrative alongside other non-biblical texts, I think there's always um, some anxiety around the following question. 
If we bring the same ideas for understanding literature to all these texts together, won't we be treating the Bible uh, really as if it has no more to say to us than a John Grisham novel or a Shakespeare play? Um, I don't think so. Shakespeare probably has more to say to us than John Grisham novels. That's what you're laughing at. That was for Esther. That, that. <laughs> um, and I, I, but I don't think it's a necessary anxiety here. Uh, one of my assumptions in giving this lecture is that the Bible is is more than literature, but not less. In other words. It is, it is the divinely inspired word of God, I believe that, that has, that has real authority to speak in the world and into our lives. So it's God's revelation to us, it's, it's how he's revealed himself. So in that sense it is more than, more than literature. And yet it comes to us in written form in a number of different genres, written by many, many different authors in different literary styles. And because of the human authorship of the Bible, it's actually necessary to read the Bible as literature in order to truly understand it. But it's literature that has an authority to speak into our lives in the ways that other literature does not. So when I open the Bible, it's not just an object to be analyzed or critiqued or understood. Um, when I open the Bible and study it prayerfully, I am also being critiqued and understood by God. Um, In a much broader sense, I think, uh, even laying aside the idea of, the, of the, the literary styles of the particular writers of different biblical um, texts, in a broader sense, when you look at the whole sweeping narrative, I think you can say the Bible is a story told to us by God himself, uh, about himself. And so it's God's well-crafted storytelling which transcends the literary styles of each writer. So my goal um, in this lecture is really two two goals. It's ridiculously ambitious, so um, I, will, I will probably not achieve them. But um, to suggest that other stories which share this theme of the unrecognized king borrow some of their power and drama in differing degrees from the great story which actually happened, like the coming of God as a man into human history. And in doing that, uh, my hope is also to, also to maybe even a little bit reignite an enjoyment of the dramatic power that's in our own scriptures. In a sense, you could say it's an, an enjoyment of, of, of the literature that is the scriptures. Um, it is an amazingly well-crafted story while remaining a true story, a story about reality. Um, I'm not going to quote from it at length or even talk about it very much, but a very useful essay to look at which deals with some of these questions is an essay by C.S. Lewis called Myth Became Fact. And he's talking about um, a lot of these similar topics um, <clears throat> that, that the, the, uh, the, the Bible is actually giving us uh, something that is, like I said about literature, more than myth but not less than myth. <laughs> Uh, the myth that, that actually happened in history. So, um, for tonight, I think we're just going to talk about my, my four basic... Uh, no. I'm not sure how to switch slides. Oh, no, other, other arrow. Which other arrow? Hmm. Up and down. Well, you may just be looking at my title tonight. <laughs> 
just a cookie. Yep. So, uh, just reflect for a few minutes, just uh, just kind of shooting from the hip. What is the fascination about this this idea? And then uh, we'll look at two examples in some depth: Kings of Ithaca and Gondor. So we'll be looking at Odysseus and the Odyssey, and then Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. And then turning to Jesus as an unrecognized king. As we read the gospel stories with this idea in mind, what, what jumps out to us? And then a very vague final section. What does it all mean? <laughs> so it'll all be fine by then. We'll figure it out. Um, so why the fascination? What, what's going on? Why do we see this in so many places? Uh, disguised authority, I think, is fascinating to people. Uh, someone who is really in charge who appears in different form and perhaps is not treated as the one in charge. Uh, and there are many examples of this, both uh, profound examples and very trivial examples. Uh, I'll just list a couple. And this is obviously yeah, just, just touching on the things that happen to occur to me. There are many more. In Shakespeare's play, Henry V, the king walks among his troops on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt and in large part to gauge the morale of his men, which is not good. Uh, this theme occurs in a handful of uh, fairy tales recorded by the brothers Grimm. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details about those stories, but uh, Poverty and Humility Lead to Heaven is the name of one of them. Maid, Maylene, and Boots of Buffalo Leather all have this theme. You can look them up later. All have this theme of the royal, usually, usually a king, who is disguised. In one case, a queen, actually, in in the novel Jane Eyre, uh, Mr. Rochester, he's not a king, but he's, he's still the lord of the manor, <laughs> uh, leaves on a journey, and shortly afterwards a mysterious stranger appears. And you don't know that it's Mr. Rochester until later. Uh, in the recent, uh, fairly recent Disney version of, of Cinderella, the live-action version, one of the big culmination at the very end, the prince himself is disguised as one of his own soldiers, and he sort of reveals himself at this very perfect moment, exposing the villains. Um, and then even the show, uh, I was mentioning this to some of our students the other day, the, the show Undercover Boss. Anyone seen this? This, is, this, this uh, trades on the fascination we have with this idea that the, that the CEO of a company spends a day or a couple of days or whatever in disguise working with the ordinary workers in the company without knowing that this is actually the boss. Right? So, and then you add to this even more trivial examples, stories about present-day royalty or even just famous actors putting on plain clothes to avoid the spotlight uh, and the paparazzi. For some reason, this is intriguing to people. Um, if it wasn't intriguing, the tabloids would not print these kinds of non-stories all the time, but you know, Prince Harry was spotted with a baseball cap and sunglasses buying a soda. Oh my gosh! Um, this this kind of thing does make the headlines. Um, why in the world is this so intriguing to us? Um, I think it's more than just a fascination about disguises and concealed identity. It, it's about the concealed status and power and authority. It's not just anyone who's disguised. It's the king or the lord of the manor or the prince. Or the CEO. And because this authority is veiled, the master gets to see what things are really like in his absence. 
Um, of course, everyone behaves when the CEO is around, but not necessarily when he or she is absent. And so if you want to really know what the true state of your kingdom is and you happen to be a king, uh, don't show up with your royal entourage. Come disguised as a person of low status. Then you will see whether people simply fear the consequences of doing wrong or whether they actually love to do what is right. Uh, the true measure of character is how you behave when the king isn't watching or when you think he isn't watching. <clears throat> so the disguised kings in, in these stories are often almost on a reconnaissance mission to find out what goes on here behind my back. Um, in my view, this is part of the fascination of, of this theme. It's that the truth will be known by someone who can do something about it. Sometimes there's even a looming sense that a reckoning is coming, right? Wrongs will be righted. Um, it's worth noticing also one reason why we were able to enjoy this theme in stories is that the narrating voice of the story knows all the facts. <coughs> And this is a device sometimes referred to as the omniscient narrator. When we, many, many stories, most stories even, we read that are in the third person. We read a story and it's just telling us the facts as they are. We never question, wait a second, is, is the voice in this story telling me the truth or not? It's the only voice there is. And so you just take it at face value. Uh, and so that, that's, that's, um, it's as if this voice is omniscient. They know everything that there is to know about the story. Um, the omniscient narrator's voice often allows us as the readers to see things as they really are and be let in on the secret, while the other characters in the story are not let in on the secret. They do not know what's really going on. They have not recognized the, the disguise as a disguise. So being a reader in the know is important. It allows us to feel the tension between appearances and reality, the tension between the character's true identity and who they are perceived to be by others. And with tension, whether uh, in any context, with tension, whether it's in a story or whether it's in a piece of music, it always uh, creates anticipation for resolution, right? Whenever there's tension in a story, we cannot help but anticipate uh, some sort of relaxing of the tension. So whenever there's a king in disguise, there is the anticipation anticipation of the reveal, the moment in which the king is finally recognized. I'm saying king all the time, uh, not not just not to be sexist. Uh, it's it's also just to, to be for it to be simpler for me to say. But also, most of the stories that I have found are actually about kings. Uh, I would love to find more examples of of queens in disguise. There's not as many, but I'm very open to hearing it. I just want to make note of that. Um, <clears throat> in the movie The Phantom Menace, Queen Amidala does. Okay, yeah, Star Wars, okay. That occurred to me a couple hours ago. I'm like, oh! It's not a good movie, though. <laughs> um, so, uh, there's this anticipation of the moment when the identity of, of the king will be recognized. When will the time be right? What will trigger it? What will happen as a result? How will people respond? It could be a joyous moment. I think a biblical example of this is the story of Joseph and his brothers. It's amazing. I mean, that's one of the reasons why that story is so captivating to so many people. He, he, they think he's dead or gone or sold into slavery. They know he's sold into slavery. have no expectation of ever seeing him again. 
uh, and yet he's this person of power um, and responsibility who recognizes them. And so we we know something that Joseph's brothers don't know in that story until the very end. And it's one of the reasons why it's such a captivating story. <clears throat> or, rather than a moment of, of, of joy, it may be some kind of judgment. Uh, I would also suggest uh, one other reason why this theme is so appealing, and I'm not sure that this appeals to everybody, but, but I certainly find it to be appealing in a story. And it's that there's beauty in the humility of the Master. Whatever the purpose of a disguise in the story, there is a willingness, an openness to be misunderstood, misinterpreted, written off, ignored, underestimated, maybe even mistreated, without immediately throwing their cloak off and, and pulling rank and saying, oh yeah, we will try saying that to my face. You know, no, there's something, there's something about this, this humility. Um, in some of these stories, there's actually a willingness for long suffering and a strength that comes with humility, and it's actually sign of the character of of the ruler to to uh, to endure this. Not always the case in every story, obviously. But I want to turn uh, now to the more specific examples. I'm not going to look at that yet. Sorry. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we'll be we're talking about Odysseus from. The Odyssey and an Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings by, by Tolkien. As we turn to some of these examples, uh, I'll just mention a couple things to keep in mind that'll help us to, to, I think, distinguish some, some similarities and differences. What are the expectations of people in the story? What do ordinary people think about the absent king? What do they think about his return? And how do they treat the actual king who is disguised if they don't know his king? So that's, that has to do with the people. <clears throat> Secondly, what's the purpose? What's the reason for concealment? Is there a motivation or a strategy? Is the king hoping to accomplish something by, by not being recognized? That's another thing to keep in mind as we read these stories. And then lastly, the reveal. Under what circumstances is the true identity of the king revealed? What makes him recognizable? Um, and so let's keep these, these ideas in mind. I won't address them in a very systematic way as we go along, but they'll just, that, these ideas will pop up as, as we go. So we'll be starting with uh, the work of Homer, the Odyssey. I'm not even remotely a classicist, um, my knowledge of the Odyssey and of Greek literature in general is very, very thin, uh, especially compared to some people in this room, which is very intimidating. Um, but uh, I'll try not to make any rash, uninformed statements. <clears throat> um, but Odysseus is king of the small kingdom of Ithaca, which is an island off the west coast of Greece. He's on his way back from the Trojan War, which ended in large part due to his own cunning. All the Greeks are setting sail and returning to their respective kingdoms. And the gods are involved in Odysseus' fate from the start. He's waylaid again and again and again throughout his journey with misfortune after misfortune. Athena is always his ally, is rooting for him. Uh, but he makes an enemy of Poseidon, which is a bad enemy to have when you have lots of ocean travel ahead of you. Um, because he blinds the Cyclops Polyphemus, who is Poseidon's son. From the moment he does that, he's, he's, uh, Poseidon is, um, yes, dead set on not letting him get home. 
So <clears throat> he loses all his men to different monsters and disasters. And after being stranded on Calypso's island for a long time, Calypso wants him to stay. The gods finally have a conference and agree that it's time to let him go home. This is actually where the Odyssey begins. It, and, and the stories leading up to that point are, are sort of a flashback of him telling the story. Um, meanwhile, back in Ithaca, Odysseus's wife, Penelope, and her son, Telemachus, are in a very tight spot. Odysseus has been away for nearly 20 years. All the other kings who fought in the Trojan War, if they weren't killed, have returned long ago. There's been rumors that Odysseus is dead, and there's been rumors that he is alive. Many local men of importance in Ithaca and from surrounding uh, kingdoms are delighted that Odysseus is so long in returning. Uh, and believing slash hoping him to be dead, they begin to compete for Penelope's hand in marriage. And it's not just a bunch of romantics wanting to marry Penelope. It's very politically motivated. Um, people want to take over this this kingdom. The number of suitors grows, and they begin to take advantage of Penelope's predicament by hanging around all day at Odysseus's house, drinking his wine, slaughtering his pigs, feasting and getting drunk into the night every night, generally becoming more and more insolent and arrogant. The longer Penelope delays in giving an answer as to who she will marry, the less of a household she will have to bring to the new marriage. There's this image of the suitors just kind of like consuming the household of Odysseus. The longer he takes to return, the less there will be. Um, And yet to make a decision to marry one of the suitors is to finally acknowledge, which he does not want to acknowledge, is that Odysseus will never come home. And so she's plagued by grief and uncertainty, and she's in a terrible position. Telemachus, his son, uh, was a baby when Odysseus went to the wars, um, painfully aware that something must be done to preserve his father's house, but never having been brought up by his father, he feels totally inexperienced and ill-equipped. He longs to see his father, but he's also tired of hoping to see his father. And so he, he convinces himself not to believe any reports that people have seen Odysseus off in the Mediterranean or the Aegean somewhere. Um, the goddess Athena comes to Telemachus and tells him to travel to Sparta and inquire about his father there. And this is in part a political move. She wants him to be viewed in a particular way to the rest of the people of Ithaca, um, as someone who's searching for his father. The suitors plan to murder Telemachus on his return. That's That's the part of their their strategies to get rid of him so that they can then take over the house of Odysseus. So this is the state, that's just background, this is the state of things uh, when the gods finally allow Odysseus to return to his homeland. His wife is a prisoner in her own house, his son is away and in danger, and the suitors are growing more impatient and violent. Uh, There are a few faithful servants who remember him and are grieving his absence, but most of them, like Telemachus, believe that he's dead and are tired of hoping. So Odysseus lands on the coast secretly. He knows that Emmaus, I think it's Emmaus, uh, which his old his old swineherd, the guy that used to take care of his pigs, he knows that he's likely to be a faithful ally. But before he goes and finds this man, Athena meets Odysseus on the shore. She's disguised as a beautiful woman, and the land itself is disguised by the mists. Odysseus does not believe he's actually home in Ithaca because he's been disappointed so many times. And he does not at first recognize Athena either. <clears throat> and Athena says to him, now I will change the slide. 
Did you not know Zeus's daughter, Athena, me, who have ever been ever with you? Who, who have been ever with you, sorry. Who kept watch over you in all your troubles and who made the Phaeacians take so great a liking to you? And now again, I am come here to talk things over with you and help you to hide the treasure I made the Phaeacians give to you. I want to tell you about the troubles that await you in your own house. You have got to face them. But tell no one, neither man nor woman, that you have come home again. Bear everything and put up with every man's insolence without a word. They begin to plot how they can kill all the suitors and restore Odysseus to his rightful place. And Athena says this as well. I will begin by disguising you so that no human being shall know you. I will cover your body with wrinkles. You shall lose all your yellow hair. I will clothe you in a garment that shall fill all who see it with loathing. I wonder what that looks like. (laughs) I will blear your fine eyes for you and make you an unseemly object in the sight of the suitors of your wife and of the son whom you left behind you. Then go at once to the swineherd who is in charge of your pigs. He has been always affected well towards you and he is devoted to Penelope and your son. So she disguises him and he eventually finds his old friend, the swineherd, Athena could have made him look just like someone else, an ordinary, respectable-looking person. But she goes all out and makes him look as repulsive as she possibly can. Um, and I think there's a point in this. Uh, it's, it's important for, for Odysseus to look like someone in, in whom no one would see an advantage in helping. In other words, someone who cannot possibly pay you back for anything that you um, there's no advantage in helping this person they are such they're so down and out um, unless it is just the the virtue of of serving a, a a helpless wanderer so Emmaus the swineherd does not recognize him but receives him hospitably as a stranger in need almost immediately he speaks of his loyalty to his old master who he supposes is gone forever he says of Odysseus, I've lost the best of masters, and I am in continual grief on his account. Here we see one of the ways in which character is judged in the story, by willingness to extend hospitality to those who can give you nothing in return. Um, it's a matter of personal honor to offer hospitality, but also a matter of respect to the gods to welcome travelers in need. So Emmaus says, Stranger, though a still poorer man should come here, it would not be right for me to insult him, for all strangers are, and beggars are from Zeus. And later on in the story, Zeus is referred to as the protector of strangers. So, care for a stranger in need is a sign of religious piety, and to refuse help is a way of dishonoring the gods, according to Emmaus. And Emmaus passes the test here both by expressing grief over Odysseus being gone, but also by welcoming this uh, repulsive stranger. Um, Odysseus, in disguise, claims to have heard that the king will surely return soon. But then he goes on, he goes on to swear, um, swear by the gods that this will take place uh, to the unbelieving swineherd. He doesn't believe that Odysseus is really alive and coming home. But then Odysseus proceeds to... to, to to spin a long and complicated fake backstory about being from Crete. And um, 
basically he wants to reassure Emmaus that the king is alive, but without revealing his identity to him. Later, when Telemachus, his son, returns from Sparta, he meets Odysseus, and Athena temporarily removes the disguise so that the son and the father can be reunited. And they begin to hatch a plan again together. So, this is obviously rocketing through the story very quickly, but what is the purpose of the disguise? Why the secrecy? Why doesn't Odysseus stroll triumphantly up from the beach, announce himself, greet his wife and son, and assert his rights? (laughs) Um, First of all, it's Athena's idea and her doing. This is really, he's really following her lead. But it also seems like the kind of thing that Odysseus would do, or would attempt himself. Um, he's a cunning man, is one of the reasons why, why Athena actually likes him. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a cunning man, and deception, I think, seems to come naturally to him after all his misadventures. There's, there's parts of the story where he just tells totally false, false stories for no particular reason. He doesn't have to lie, but he does. Um, so his disguise, in a way, is sort of like a manifestation of his suspicion. He knows he cannot blindly trust anyone coming home. The disguise is uh, Athena's way, in the sense of protecting him. To some degree, Odysseus's disguise is to take stock of the virtue of his own people. Who is hospitable to a beggar when there is no discernible advantage for doing so? And this, as I said earlier, is a sign of virtue but he must be the beggar to see it. Who is still loyal to the rightful king after all these years? Who is taking advantage of his absence for personal gain? Who must... Uh, Odysseus must not be recognized as king if he's, if he's going to get true answers to any of these questions. Overwhelmingly, we're still talking about reasons for this disguise. Overwhelmingly, the purpose for the disguise is strategic and and motivated by a desire for revenge. So it's the only way he can infiltrate his own household without anyone paying attention to him or taking him seriously and hatch a plan for for killing all of these suitors. Uh, To announce his identity upon arrival in Ithaca would have meant an immediate battle of one against several hundred. So instead, as a beggar, he does reconnaissance. He counts his allies, he plots his revenge, he sets the stage, he gets Telemachus to hide all the armor of the suitors and put it away in a room so that when the battle begins, they will not be able to defend themselves. So what about the big reveal? And this is, I'm I'm skipping over so much, obviously, but um, how does the truth come out? Well, Odysseus is revealed in extreme violence. <laughs> this is the, the moment of revelation. Uh, he is the only only one able to to uh, successfully string his own bow, and and then shoot an arrow through a bunch of rings that are on the uh, on axes. And so the axes are set in a perfect line, and this was something that only Odysseus could ever do. Uh, he strings the bow when all the other shooters can't even string the bow, and he shoots an arrow through through all these rings, and. This is a shocking thing. All the suitors are completely taken aback. And this is the moment in which Odysseus reveals his identity, throws off his cloak, and then um, the the battle begins. And uh, it is a bloodbath. (laughs) Uh, In the context of his long suffering and the insolence and the treachery of the suitors, the terrible treatment which he himself has had from them, one of them threw a chair at him and... um, 
it's a cathartic moment in the context of the story. It's certainly a culmination of all of Athena's plans and guidance. His hiddenness was for the purpose of this moment, <laughs> it's really to, to retake his house and his and his throne. Uh, and the fact that this beggar was the true king all along, I think, is crucial to the dramatic power of the story. For the whole second half of the story, he's he's in disguise for for uh, a huge portion of the of the story. Um, I'm going to leave it at that and move a couple thousand years forward and look at the second example I want to talk about tonight, which is from J.R.R. Tolkien's story, The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien seems to have a deep love for this theme that I've been talking about, veiled power or, or royalty unrecognized. And there are many of, there are examples of it in The Lord of the Rings, uh, I think a good example is Gandalf, who often is, is perceived as being just this old man who maybe does tricks for the kids and whatever, but he's actually, he's up to something much more important and terrible and dangerous than anybody realizes. Um, also, Tolkien wrote a, a shorter fairy tale um, called Smith of Wooten Major. Has anyone heard of this story? <laughs> uh, <laughs> in which the king of fairy visits and lives a quiet human life as an apprentice to a baker in this small, what seems like a medieval town, in order to decide which human will bear the star which allows him to pass into fairy, into this land. Uh, he reveals himself once to an arrogant old fool who used to be the head baker and his boss. But other than that, the king of fairy is, doesn't reveal who he is. Um, Really interesting stories, worth reading. But the quintessential unrecognized king in, in Tolkien's stories is Aragorn. From the moment he appears uh, in Lord of the Rings, he's a mysterious and unsettling character. So, how many people have read the Lord of the Rings? Okay, so, this is great, okay. How many people have seen the movies? Okay. Um... So there's four hobbits, uh, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, and they come across Aragorn at the inn at Bree, which is like a big, basically a big pub. Uh, they're being hunted and have narrowly escaped several times in the wilderness from they know not what exactly. There's these terrible um, cloaked figures on horses that are scouring the countryside for them. And these are, they don't know this yet, but they are the Nazgul, which are the ring wraiths who serves Sauron, who is, the, who is the, the main sort of force of evil, sort of this demonic character in the story. Um, and they've been sent to take the ring away from Frodo. So Frodo has the ring, and they've been sent to take it back. Um, they used to be kings, but are now enslaved to Sauron. They're neither dead nor alive. They're very horrible and scary. Um, by the time the hobbits arrive at Bree, they are exhausted and scared and suspicious, uh, they know that there are spies everywhere and that the name of Baggins, which is Frodo's last name, is not a safe name to use anymore. <laughs> Tolkien writes this. Suddenly, Frodo noticed that a strange-looking, weather-beaten man, sitting in the shadows near the wall, was also listening intently to the hobbit talk. He had a tall tankard in front of him, was smoking a long stem pipe, curiously carved. His legs were stretched out before him, showing high boots of supple leather that fitted him well, but had, been, had seen much wear and were now caked with mud. 
A travel-stained cloak of heavy dark green cloth was drawn close about him, and in spite of the heat of the room, he wore a hood that overshadowed his face. But the gleam of his eyes could be seen as he watched the hobbits. And then when Frodo asks who this man is, he asks the innkeeper. The innkeeper says, I don't rightly know. He's one of the wandering folk, rangers we call them. He seldom talks, not but he can tell a rare tale when he has a mind. He disappears for a month or a year, and then he pops up again. What his right name is, I've never heard. But he's known around here as Strider. Goes about at a great pace on his long shanks. Though he don't tell nobody what cause he has to hurry. Um, Strider is slow to gain the Hobbit's trust that evening. (laughs) He seems to know a disturbing amount of information about the Hobbits, the reason why they are fleeing the Shire, what Frodo is secretly carrying, and the nature of the evil that's pursuing them. So he's clearly someone who is in the know. Uh, He's pleased that they are slow to trust him, because up until that, they have been way too careless. (laughs) But he's also aware of the obstacle to their trust that his rough appearance poses. He wants Frodo... He warns Frodo... um, but also comments on how he himself is perceived. He says to Frodo, This isn't the Shire. There are queer folk about. Though I say it as shouldn't, you might think. (laughs) He added with a wry smile, seeing Frodo's glance. So we learn much later that Strider is the chief uh, of the Dunedain, who are rangers of the north, who actually are have an ancient and royal lineage. He himself is the heir to the throne of Gondor, which is the kingdom to the south. But that that kingdom has been ruled by stewards in the absence of a king for many, many generations. So there hasn't been a king in his kingdom for a long time. Strider is descended directly from the king Elendil, the king who once defeated Sauron by cutting off the finger on which he held the ring. So this is this is sort of the ancient history. Um, This took place in a previous age of Middle-earth, thousands of years before. Sauron is growing in power again, and Aragorn still carries the broken sword that cut the ring from his hand. It's it's in in several pieces, but he carries it with him. So the hobbits are given a letter by the innkeeper in Bree from Gandalf, telling him that they can trust Strider. And in the letter, Gandalf quotes a verse that's about Aragorn. All that is gold does not glitter... Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by frost. From the ashes a fire shall shall woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. So this letter helps the hobbits to finally trust Strider. Uh, He tells them, I knew nothing of this letter, for all I knew I had to persuade you to trust me without proofs, if I was to help you. But I must admit, he added with a queer laugh, that I hope you would take to me for my own sake. A hunted man sometimes wearies of distrust and longs for friendship, but there I believe my looks are against me. Frodo finally says to him, you have frightened me several times tonight, but never in the way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. I think one of his spies would, well, seem fairer and feel fouler, if you understand. (laughs) To to which Aragorn says, oh, so I seem foul to you. (laughs) Um, Needless to say, Aragorn does not appear to be a king. 
For many long years, his task and the task of his kinsmen has been to constantly patrol the wild lands around the Shire and Bree, protecting it from the shadows of evil that are always pressing in. So whenever the rangers come to civilized towns, they are feared and distrusted. Uh, All the while, they are the protectors, never resting, never thanked, always traveling in the borderlands, always alert and keeping evil at bay. And this is the reason why Aragorn always leaves in a hurry, you know, which is why he's, he's ridiculed for doing this. Um, the rangers are clearly called to some higher sense of duty and purpose than the Brelanders can understand, and so they put up with the distrust. They're, they're, they know what they're doing. Aragorn accepts the name of Strider, although it is perhaps given to him pejoratively. He becomes the closest and most reliable friend to the hobbits uh, in their long and dangerous journey. The old and, and learned ones in the story know who Aragorn is, and they honor him, but most ordinary people do not. Even after the hobbits learned his true identity, they st- still just call him Strider, and they think of him as their, as their traveling companion, <coughs> which he doesn't correct. He's fine. So, uh, what's the purpose of the disguise? This is an interesting question. Uh, why does he allow his kingship to be veiled why does he delay his his rise to the throne repeatedly? And this is actually where the... I'm not going to get into this. You'll be glad to know. But this is actually where the films diverge quite a lot from the books. Um, drastically, I would say. In the books, Aragorn has absolutely no doubt as to his identity and his responsibility to take the throne. So it's something he longs for, and it's something that has been long planned. He's not reluctant or divided internally about his call... Uh, rather, in his character, you see an awareness that the time is not yet ripe to go to the great city, Minas Tirith, and reveal who he is. The time is not right. The disguise continues each time he is delayed, always because of his sense of duty, calling him often in the opposite direction, uh, on other errands. And an example of this is when the, in the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book of the trilogy when the fellowship actually breaks up, when they all go in separate directions. Sam and Frodo split off secretly with the ring and head towards Mordor. Baromir, the man of Gondor, is killed, defending Merry and Pippin, who are brutally abducted by orcs and dragged across the plains of Rohan. Aragorn has a terrible choice before him. Uh, But in his choice, he reveals the strength of his character. He desires to follow Frodo and Sam, who have to have really have to carry out the most essential task. He wants to be with them and to help them. He also longs to return to his own great city, where he will be king. His heart is always there, in a sense. And yet he makes the what can only be called the least strategic choice to pursue the orcs who have kidnapped Merry and Pippin. And uh, which, by anyone's definition, is a fool's errand across miles and miles of wilderness to rescue two little people who up until now have been no practical use to anyone. Uh, later on, they, they are, actually. <laughs> but up until this point, they've been luggage, basically, for stronger people. And, and it's almost sure to fail. <laughs> and yet he does it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> He turns his back on his throne and begins the chase. For all he knows, uh, it will end up in his own death. So uh, he ha- he says to his two remaining companions, it's Legolas the elf and Gimli the dwarf. There's only three of them left. And he says this. 
I would have guided Frodo to Mordor and gone with him to the very end. But if I seek him in the wilderness, I will abandon the captives to torment and death. My heart speaks clearly at last. The fate of the bearer, meaning the ring bearer, is in my hands no longer. The company has played its part. Yet we that remain cannot forsake our companions while we have strength left. And then he says later, We shall all need the endurance of dwarves. With hope or without hope, we will follow the trail of our enemies. And woe to them if we prove the swifter. Um, This idea of doing the right thing, whether there's hope in it or not. (laughs) Whether there's a guarantee of success or not. Um, When all the while, his throne is waiting for him. Right? (laughs) All this is to say that Aragorn's story is one of perpetual delayed gratification in service to others and in service of the great task of the age, which is to defeat Sauron and prevent him from invading and enslaving all of Middle-earth, which is his plan. So Aragorn has great wisdom and great restraint, uh, but he is not conflicted about who he is or his ultimate goal at all. Um, Later on, Gandalf describes him with great reverence as a man who can give himself counsel. <laughs> um, even after the very the terrible battle surrounding his city, Minas Tirith, uh, Aragorn remains hidden. And he was, he was instrumental in the victory. Uh, he even flew the banner of Elendil during this battle, revealing his lineage. Uh, but even then, when the battle is done, he does not enter the city and make himself known. Why? When pressed by his friend Aomer to enter the city, Aragorn says this. Behold, the sun setting in great fire. It is a sign of the end and fall of many things and a change in the tides of the world. But this city and realm have rested in the charge of the stewards for many long years. And I fear that if I enter it unbidden, then doubt and debate will arise, which should not be while this war is fought. I will not enter in nor make any claim until it be seen whether we or Mordor shall prevail. Men shall pitch my tent, and here I will await the welcome of the lord of the city. I deem the time unripe, and I have no mind for strife except with the enemy and his servants. Um, Imrahil, one of the other princes, says, I would not have you remain like a beggar at the door. To which Aragorn says, not a beggar, say a captain of the rangers who are unused to cities and houses of stone. (laughs) And then he commands his banner to be furled up and put away, (laughs) which is a very symbolic uh, act. So the disguise remains because the way in which he claims the throne is very significant. He knows that his kingship might possibly be disputed by the stewards who have watched over the city for generations. Many of them think that that there's no need for a king. (laughs) We're doing just fine. So he does not want to begin any conflict at a time when the enemies of Sauron need to be absolutely united. Uh, and so again, delayed the delayed gratification. Um, despite this wise move, Aragorn actually cannot stay hidden long. Uh, how is he revealed as king? And this is this is one of the most beautiful parts of the whole story, I think, to me. What makes him recognizable? When is the time ripe? Well, this is just. This, this day has been a day of bloodshed. There's been a massive battle outside the city walls. Um, many sick and wounded people have been carried into the city throughout the battle, throughout the day. Some with ordinary injuries, but many with an unknown illness in which they grow colder and colder, slip into darkness and die. 
and it's called the Black Shadow because it's a result of the Nazgul. It's, it's, it's people who have been touched or affected by the Nazgul in some way. Anyone who's come into contact with the Nazgul uh, die in this way. And there's absolutely no cure. Nobody knows what what to do about it. The Lady Eowyn, who is responsible for killing the Lord of the Nazgul, she's uh, one of the great heroes of the story. The Hobbit Mary and the Lord Faramir, who's, who's actually the steward of the city, are all fading away from this black shadow. Gandalf is pacing back and forth, worried in the Houses of Healing, baffled, and no idea what to do to help these, these people who have just... Um, yeah, who've been, who've been brought into the city. An old woman named Iorith, who worked in the Houses of Healing, was tending to Faramir, and she started to weep. And she said... <clears throat> She said, Alas, if he should die, would that there were kings in Gondor as there were once upon a time, as they say. For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king could ever be known. Gandalf immediately responds to this. (laughs) Uh, And he says, Men may long remember your words, Iorith, for there is hope in them. Maybe a king has indeed returned to Gondor. Or have you not heard the strange tidings that have come to the city? So Gandalf rushes out and later returns with a mysterious cloaked figure who does not immediately give his name. Uh, He took a lot of persuading that Aragorn finally agreed to come into the city. And he immediately goes to each person's bedside. He touches them. He speaks to them. He gets the healers to scour the city for this herb that nobody thinks is useful, but he knows really is. Uh, and he calls people back out of the darkness. And so there's this beautiful quote um, where he is... This is Tolkien's description of Aragorn at the bed of Faramir, who is, who is very, very nearly dead. Now Aragorn knelt beside Faramir and held his hand upon his brow. And those that watched felt that some great struggle was going on. For Aragorn's face grew gray with weariness. And ever and anon he called the name of Faramir, but each time more faintly to their hearing, as if Aragorn himself was removed from them and walked afar in some dark vale, calling for the one that was lost. <clears throat> A messenger returns with some of the herb, and he begins to treat Faramir, and then suddenly Faramir stirred. He opened his eyes, looked on Aragorn, who bent over him, and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly, My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? This is the steward of the city, saying this to the to the king, right? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. Um, and then the news begins to spread throughout the city that the king has actually returned and was healing people, as the old proverb predicted. And that's how Aragorn is recognized as king. So by the time he comes to his throne, the entire city loves him and is loyal to him. Uh, And you begin to see, ah, the time really wasn't right before. (laughs) The time is right now. Okay, enough talking. Thank you for your patience. I promised to talk about Jesus tonight, so we're going to do that. (laughs) 
where to start? Uh, Jesus, the unrecognized king. What do we mean? <clears throat> I think we can talk about this on two levels. And first, this is going to sound strange, but the first level is the disguise of the incarnation itself. The way in which the incarnation itself is a disguise. I'll try to clarify what I mean by that. Um, second, Second level, the ways in which Jesus in the gospel stories actively conceals himself. Uh, both of these play a part in Jesus being an unrecognized king. And to avoid misunderstanding, uh, I just want to clarify, the incarnation is not just a disguise. Uh, it's still God's clearest revelation of himself. Uh, the fact is, some people actually do recognize the disguised king. Some, some people after a long while. Um, hallelujah for that. <laughs> but for the people who ultimately reject Jesus, the incarnation remains an effective disguise. He is not recognized for who he is by some. Uh, So let's talk about the disguise of the incarnation. It's very hard to choose which stories to include because uh, by virtue of being fully God and fully a human being, Jesus is in a continual state of being unrecognized or underrecognized. His power is veiled wherever he goes, whatever he does. Even if he's stilling the storm, it's still not the full power of God. Uh, Jesus' whole life is one of being underestimated, unrecognized, misunderstood, disrespected, treated with less honor than his status deserves. You could say this is, this is, uh, on some level, every story in the Gospels, this is the backdrop, right? This is in part understandable. The Jewish culture into which Jesus Christ comes is strictly monotheistic, and it is supposed to be. (laughs) So to worship anything or anyone instead of or in addition to Yahweh is scandalous. It's idolatry. To produce an image of the one living God is an abomination. (laughs) And for a person to claim equality with the Lord is blasphemy worthy of death. So this, this is the level of of conviction of of their monotheism that the Jewish people have. So the idea of a man who's born like an ordinary baby, uh, has a hometown, lots of ordinary things about him, claiming that he is the Lord incarnate, uh, God having taken on flesh, this is just a preposterous idea, a heretical idea to a first century Jew. Not the way to have a long and successful ministry in Jerusalem, or around Jerusalem at that time. It's always, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's certain that many, many people uh, simply do not and will not recognize him for who he is, at least at first. And so the coming of Christ is a deeply ironic event, I think, because it's both the clearest revelation of who God is, God made visible in the material world, and at the same time, it is itself a stumbling block, a disguise, much in the same way that Paul refers to the cross in 1 Corinthians uh, as a stumbling block. Uh, it's the power of God. It's also a stumbling block because it is a symbol of shame and weakness and death. So in Jesus, God himself is displayed. 
for those who have eyes to see it, but shrouded for those who do not. Another way of putting this, it's like he's a walking parable. You know, Jesus' words about why he speaks in parables. Um, Jesus is like a walking parable himself, bringing light and truth to those who desire it, but bringing deeper confusion to those who resist it. This is an aspect of the judgment that Jesus brings, uh, as well as the mercy. But Philippians 2 is a wonderful, very well-known reflection on the Incarnation. <clears throat> Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is in the context of some pastoral teaching on humility and unity, uh, but Paul decides this is a good a good moment to give us these two radically different p- images of Jesus, both true. Jesus shamed and dishonored by death on the cross, as ungodlike as it is possible to be, and then Jesus exalted in honor, receiving worship from the whole created order, as uncrucified as it's possible to be. This is not only the same person. Paul's point is that it's precisely because he became ungodlike, enduring the grit of human life and the shame of unjust execution. It's because of that that God exalts him. It's the therefore in verse 9. Therefore, um, it's because of this lowliness that he is exalted and because of his acceptance of dishonor that he's honored. So what's perceived as shameful by every human standard is actually to God glory and excellence because it displays his love with shocking clarity it's his love that is on display and that is his glory you remember we talked about the dramatic tension in the stories about Aragorn and Odysseus and their veiled authority it's the tension between the reality and the appearance between their true identity and their perceived identity And the gap between these two uh, is wide. When each of them are revealed, people who thought they knew them were shocked by the transformation. Aragorn occasionally has these almost like transfiguration moments where like he he reveals who he is and everyone's like, whoa! Um, So there's a gap between the perception and the reality. But in the accounts of the coming of Christ, we have a drama of a different order, I think. The, The same dynamic tension is in effect between who Jesus is and what people think he is. But the gap between the appearance and the reality is infinitely wide. Uh, because he's in fact the infinite God of the universe. And a first century Jewish man. 
So he's the foundation of all reality, the source and sustainer of all existence, the one through whom all things were made, the deliverer of his people, and a man who gets hungry and tired and lonely. Uh, so you see what I'm saying? It's because of his identity as God, this, this, this dramatic tension is... is um, very different from the other stories. If we're talking about dramatic tension, no other disguised king can really compare. Um, John, in the prologue to his gospel, presses this on us, and this is just a, a piece of it. Yep. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the, God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping ahead a little bit. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this is sort of what I mean by the, by the infinite gap between the perception and the reality he's talking about. There is nothing in the created order that anyone can ever point to that was not made through the agency of the sun. <laughs> uh, and yet he comes to his own and his own does not know him. So, uh, in addition to, and so I've just been sort of talking about the incarnation itself as sort of this un- unavoidable disguise. Not everybody will see Jesus for who he actually is. Um, but what about, what about the things that Jesus actually says and does in, in the, the four gospels that seem to be actively concealing himself? <laughs> uh, there's a theme of secrecy in the gospels that Jesus himself encourages at times, that it's very interesting. It's a motif that biblical scholars sometimes call the messianic secret. And people have pointed this out, particularly in the book of Mark, but you see it um, to a degree in the other Gospels as well. Just to give you three examples here. Uh, in Mark 7, after healing a deaf and mute man, he says, tell no one. <laughs> in Mark 8, we see this. Uh, and, he at, um, and he asked them, who is it that you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then in Mark 9, this is in a sense the most interesting one. Jesus is speaking to Peter, uh, James, and John, literally on his way down from the mountain where he has just been transfigured in front of them. They've, they've seen this vision. It's actually what John is talking about in his, referring to in his prologue. We have seen his glory. <laughs> I've actually seen Jesus in his glory, in the transfiguration. Um, they're on the way down the mountain from this incredible moment. 
And Jesus says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. If you tally up between the four Gospels, uh, Jesus is recorded as saying, tell no one, eight times. It's not a ton of times. And there's some overlap in the stories between the Gospels. But it's enough to be striking. <laughs> um, people often don't listen to him when he tells them to tell no one. Uh, he, they often run off and tell everybody, and then he, he, there's a number of moments where he has to try harder to avoid crowds because everybody seems to tell everybody. Um, I'm not sure if it's reverse psychology and he really wants everybody to know or not, but, uh, why, why might, why, why might Jesus be doing this? Um, I think there's two, there's many obstacles that Jesus faces in his earthly ministry, two in particular. Uh, there's the people like the Pharisees and the priests who resist him outright and reject him and then there's the people that accept and welcome him for the wrong reasons so jesus escapes the crowds that want to stone him at times but he also escapes the crowds that want to crown him he's running away from both very strategically (laughs) uh many people want to seize him and try to make him their kind of king a striking example of this is in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, they realize, oh my gosh, this guy can, can take a little bit of food and feed a crowd. Some scholars have, have, have studied the, one of our professors at Regent had done work on what, what were the messianic expectations at the time. They're not, these expectations are not recorded anywhere in the Bible, but in the first century, looking at extra biblical literature, what can we tell about the Jews' expectations of what the Messiah would be doing? One of them was performing miracles in the wilderness, <laughs> feeding people. And so uh, <clears throat> this suddenly um, signals to the crowd, this is, this is the guy, right? This is the Messiah. Uh, and he has to dodge the crowd so as not to be made king. Jesus is surrounded by people that think they really know what they need him to do. Uh, but in reality, they have no idea what they really need and no idea what he's really come to do for them. They are eager to make Jesus into a solution to what they perceive as their big problem, which actually is a relatively small problem compared to what Jesus has come to do. They think their problem is uh, political independence. <laughs> this is what we need to achieve. Um, so the expectation of a political military messiah is at a high pitch in Jesus' day. People are constantly asking, is this the one who will free us from the Romans? Is this the one who will restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it that one? Or is is it this other guy over here? There's there's all this conjecture. Everybody's looking for the one. Uh, What does not seem to occur to most people is that the Messiah is not coming to win a political or a military victory for them. Uh, The Messiah is coming to defeat sin and death much more foundational problem than anybody uh, dares to think about. <clears throat> it's when Jesus makes clear that he has not come to solve the problem that they want him to solve. Uh, this is when the crowds turn on him. It's when he refuses to be a servant of people's idolatries that they turn on him. And if you think of the contrast between um, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when everyone's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a celebration. Less than a week later, there's no way of knowing exactly, but but I, I'm, I'm sure there's some of the very same people saying, crucify him. Um, the second he doesn't serve my idolatries, I'm done with him. 
So Jesus is avoiding the trap of other people's agendas. All in order that his true agenda, his true identity would be known later. So concealment is not the ultimate point. Jesus did not come to hide his identity. That's not the reason why God took on flesh. Uh, what we see in Jesus' willingness to be unrecognized now, it's an order to be recognized rightly later for who he truly is and for why he truly came. Um, this is a way of being in the world that Jesus commits to at the very beginning of his ministry. Um, I've done a little bit of study on the temptation narrative in the wilderness when, Satan, when he's led into the wilderness and Satan tempts him. In all three synoptic gospels that they tell this story with some minor differences and they, some of them tell the, tell the story in different order. But we could sum up these three temptations like this and they all touch on, on, on our topic tonight. The first temptation goes like this. Take advantage of your power and make some bread. Meet your own needs because you can do it. You're God. If you're, if you're the son of God, you could do it. Uh, meet your own needs. And live uh, independently of your father. That's the first temptation. Second temptation. Make a splash and become a public figure through your miracles. You could do it. Prove your identity to me and to others through arbitrary works of power. Throw yourself off the top of the building. Um, Jesus' own family. Interesting. Take this view of things. Um, And I don't have the exact text right here. Uh, It's when they're trying to convince him to go to the festival. They're trying to convince him to be more of a public figure. You've got this great talent, kid. You should really get out there and draw a crowd. Stop performing in the shadows. Step into the spotlight. Then you'll really have a following. This is how people get followings. It's not by hiding. By having a social media presence. Um, his family is trying to trying to convince him to do this, and he, he completely rejects it. So this is a... The, tempt, the, the temptations of the wilderness are not only a specific moment where the devil is tempting him, they're sort of, they're sort of um, models for temptations that Jesus faces every day, I think, in his life. Um, the third temptation is, just take your crown now by worshiping me, Satan. All nations will bow down to you, you will bow down to me. It's simple. People's worship is what you want, Right? So Jesus rejects all three of these temptations, not because he is a reluctant king. He knows he will come to his throne, but only by remaining in relationship to his father and obedience to his father, but only by using his power to serve and heal and teach people in need rather than to grow in fame. So he completely rejects the lure of splash publicity. And he knows he will come to his throne only by dying a sacrificial death for the sin of the nations that he has come to rule. So Satan's last offer, uh, Dick has often said this, the last temptation that Satan throws at him is the, is the offer of a unified world religion in which no one is saved. Uh, because, in essence, it's an avoidance of the cross. Take your crown now. <clears throat> So Jesus' rejection of these temptations is to continue to be hidden in submission to his father's timing and plan. Uh, he is determined to remain the kind of king that the world actually needs, rather than the kind of king that people want. 
<clears throat> I'm just going to mention one one thing uh, here before we before we wrap up. Other, you know, we're sort of still talking about reasons for for Jesus concealing himself. There's a really interesting passage. I actually read to, to those of you who are students here, I read, read a piece of it at, the, um, at our last discussion meal over lunch from the Screwtape Letters. And Screwtape, who is in the context of these strange letters that C.S. Lewis wrote, Screwtape is a demon, so everything he says is uh, from the opposite perspective of, of God's perspective. And he says many true things. He's also a bit arrogant and self-deceived, but... Uh, he sees he sees some things with with real clarity, and he says this of God, who is his enemy. God can only woo; he cannot ravish. In other words, God does not override the wills of people by appearing to people with uh, overpowering beauty in his presence. <clears throat> he wants. Willing servants who become sons, not coerced slaves who will become food. And this is, this is, uh, what the, how the devil view, views people according to screw tape. It's, it's, uh, mess with their wills as much as you possibly can. All they are is food for the table. Whereas God relates to people very differently because he wants willing servants who will become sons and daughters. Um, he wants us to choose from our wills to follow him, even when there's seemingly no reward for doing so. And this is the whole point of this conversation is Scrutip explaining why God allows people to go through times of dryness so that they will actually obey him from their will, not because of some emotional richness. So <clears throat> we could say the same thing about the disguise of the incarnation. It's because he wants to woo, not ravish. So he comes quietly humbly and gently. He has many hard truths to say, that's true, but never without mercy. And he comes suffering and dying. And I would say Jesus comes giving us reason after reason after reason to love him and obey him and worship him. He doesn't coerce us to do any of those things, but he gives us all the reasons we need to do those things. There is a, a fascinating uh, little parable that Soren Kierkegaard wrote that deals with this very idea. I'm just going to read it to you. It's only I didn't actually put it on the screen because I thought I'd just read it. But um, it goes like this. It's called The King and the Maiden. And this is actually Kierkegaard's sort of, sort of uh, metaphor for the incarnation. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know for sure? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. 
He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was king, and she a humble maiden, and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. This was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. Very interesting. Um, Particularly if you think of it as an analogy of the Incarnation, it's powerful, but it's not a perfect analogy for the Incarnation, I don't think, exactly. Um, Jesus never actually gave up his divine identity. He remained the Lord. Uh, But the Lord made flesh. But in any case, you see Kierkegaard's point. To a God who wants genuine love from his people, freely given, he would not show up as a thundercloud. Uh, You might do what a thundercloud tells you, but you will be afraid of it. (laughs) This is actually sort of how God related to his people earlier on, but the story of the Bible is a story of God's unveiling more and more of himself and coming closer and closer to his people. So he'd already done that kind of thing in the Old Testament. Um, He wants to be closer to his people and to win, not coerce their love. What about... After the crucifixion, I'm just going to mention a couple of quick examples, and then and then we'll end. Um, there's no doubt that he is revealed as the Lord at his resurrection. Um, but even after his resurrection, Jesus' relationship with his disciples is, is like a dance of revelation and concealment. If you think about it, it's really interesting. Mary, on Easter morning, goes to the tomb. She sees that it is empty and thinks Jesus' body has been removed. She asks the first guy she sees, uh, who she thinks is a gardener, where did you all put the body? Uh, doesn't realize it's actually Jesus until he calls her name. Later on, Jesus appeals to a room full of followers, but Thomas missed out. He wasn't there. He's not convinced that this is real. He feel, I'm sure he feels very excluded and sad uh, until he sees Jesus and his wounds. And at this, this is the moment where, and, and Jesus calls him by his name again. And he responds with, my Lord and my God. And then, lastly, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walks and talks with two of his disciples for miles without being recognized. Uh, he only reveals who he is at the end of the day when he breaks bread and serves them. And this is, a lot of people have made note of this, this is a significant thing because he's breaking bread which is the, the symbol of his death for people and feeding them. Uh, that's the moment at which he becomes recognizable. And it's, it's, it's reminiscent of actually, remember the secret motif we were talking about in Mark. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's the centurion at the cross who says, surely this was the, the Son of God, which is the end of the secret. This is like the, the, the pagan general finally seeing the truth and and people have argued that it's because Mark is making the point, this is the moment when you you see God truly revealed. This is when you can see him for who he is. It's at the moment of his death for his people. <clears throat> so, uh, in the road to Emmaus, 
Uh, he's unrecognized until the very, very end of the evening. I sometimes wonder whether he wanted to teach them a lot of stuff and help make connections for them in the scriptures without them freaking out that he was Jesus. <laughs> he told them a lot of things and then revealed himself. Who knows? Um, so, so uh, in conclusion, what, what, what now? This is the part where we just wrap it all up. Um, I'm just going to make a couple of comments and then we'll end for discussion. I don't have a bi- I don't have a great um, major thesis to state at the end here, but uh, I think we live in a part of the story in which Jesus' kingship has been revealed. And yet we're waiting for his kingship to be fully revealed. Uh, we who know he is king uh, know that he's coming back. Many people do not know this. So the incarnation is still a disguise to many people. Uh, anyone who says, well, Jesus was just a man, a good teacher, a rabbi in the first century, nothing more. That's an example of the incarnation remaining a disguise. <laughs> Uh, something that we need to to try to convince people of otherwise. Um, but there's a way in which Jesus still comes to us disguised, I think. And uh, this is not a very full-formed thought, but in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the last judgment when he will be seated on the throne. And the king says to the people who have served the poor and the sick and the lame, he says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he, he, in the the uh, the woe to you section comes later. Where he says, "Those of you who did not do this to the to the weak and to the lame and the lost, uh, you did not do it to me." So Jesus is saying he he so identifies with the least um, that he receives service to them as service to himself. Somehow, uh, we can show our love to the Lord of the universe by our love for the least of these. So while I do not expect uh, the next person that I see on the street to literally be Jesus, there's a sense in which he's still among us and we serve him through serving the people who are most in need. Um, And this seems to me just sort of an interesting next step in the conversation about the Lord Jesus coming to us in disguise. Um, so to to step back and just look, just briefly reflect on what we've covered, uh, Odysseus. How are these kings revealed? Odysseus and recognize Odysseus by his strength and prowess, stringing the bow, and then uh, defeating all the suitors. Uh, Aragorn is revealed by his ability to heal the sick. And Jesus is revealed in his death, as the centurion uh, says this amazing statement at the moment of Jesus' death. Surely this was the Son of God. Um, And after the resurrection, the moments of recognition are connected to his death. It's when people see his scars. It's when people... Well, it's when Jesus breaks bread for them, the great symbol of his death, uh, that he's recognized. And so I'm going to, which are really, I mean, the scars are a sign, a sign of his love. This is what, <laughs> what the scars are. Uh, I'm going to play a song to end the evening, and then we will um, stop for discussion. This is a song by Gillian Welch. It's, it's a song that, uh, it's been around for a long time. I think it's late 90s she recorded this, but it's... Uh, 
not being a um, a Christian, as far as I know, but but sort of wrote this song in the in the genre of like sort of a country gospel song, and uh, seems to understand some of the profound truths of the Christian faith. <laughs> Um, so the, the, there's a there's a line that that says um, the king of heaven can be told from a prince of fools by the mark, and it's talking about the mark of the nails on his skin. Uh, we'll listen to it.
that is where I end. Thank you for listening. It's been a long one. <laughs> um, at this point, we open it up for discussion, for questions, comments. Um, I will do my best to respond. I may call on other people to respond to. Um, but yeah, any thoughts, questions? I can't really see any of you. I can sort of like, try to do that. Like, <laughs> Yes. I I would ask this question. Oh, good. Um, thank you for your question. And this is not, this is a question I anticipate essentially being raised by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Perfect. So, um, I guess the question is like, is there something like problematic about a person? Is it unfair in some way? Hmm. Is it, you know, stacking the deck or, um, <laughs> yeah. Dishonest or deceptive Dishonest or something like that. Yeah. Deceptive in a way that's, yeah, I don't know, sneaky or, mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. That's I mean, a good question. When you yeah. talked about the reckoning piece, I think that's helpful because yeah. the idea of the reckoning when the reveal happens is that, you know, Mom will be right when Aslan comes in sight. Right, right, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And, um, and so if you, if you are virtuous or mm-hmm. um, loyal, then that's mm-hmm. going to go well for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sir, yeah. Like yeah. I wouldn't say unfairness. I mean, it depends on the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like a, a theme, a very loose theme that has hundreds of different you know, permutations and, uh, yeah, um, there is, there is an element of deception for sure. I don't, I don't, in, in some of the stories, um, in the Odyssey, definitely. (laughs) Um, I think it's also a response to the deception that's going on by people thinking that Odysseus is nowhere around, we can do whatever we want. So there's there's, there's dishonesty on both sides. Um, yeah. Um, I guess the question is, is it intrinsically wrong to to not reveal your, who, who you are at every given, at every given moment? Um, I want to say no. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, the, we're looking at this. Uh, just, just free associating about about the, the, some of the words I just said. Interestingly, Aragorn at never at no point is really intentionally disguising himself. He's just too busy <laughs> to come to the throne, and he's on the road all the time, and he looks like a like a tramp. <laughs> so it, it's not like he's like, no, I'm not Aragorn. He, so in a sense, he he is completely honest. He doesn't always say who he is, but he doesn't pretend to be anybody else. Um, yeah. And is there something really different about that and what Odysseus does? Yeah. Being a deceitful person just mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, I think there is. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do. I mean, um, 
there's also a, a big difference in their motivation for, for what they're doing. Odysseus, it's, it's, just, it's very strategic to, to bring <laughs> hellfire down on these people. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, give me, yeah, help me out here, people. Any, any, any thoughts on this? Talk? Yes, Sarah. Yeah. Like as you yeah. explained most, I think, you know, fully with Jesus. Yeah. And so there's a way in which, um, yeah, we, we wouldn't get to know the character of Aragorn the king. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't know him as you know, Strider mm-hmm. or something. Like our own expectations and assumptions inhibit us from actually seeing the yeah. qualities that yeah. are, are what we project onto the world. Mm-hmm. It has to be undone, and mm-hmm. so there's a grace or a mercy to us yeah. in, in that yeah. hiding or concealing. Yeah, and I, and I would say in the case of <laughs> it's funny to talk about in the case of Jesus and Aragorn, um, <laughs> but in in the in these two cases, it is there's not actually intentional deceit going on, really. I mean, the incarnation itself is just makes it hard hard for people to get get their heads around the fact that this is God. But, but, um, yeah, so, Jenny, Lenny, do you have a... Well, just on that same theme, yeah. it seems that in those particular characters and probably others, there's a lack of a sense of self-importance mm-hmm. that sees being who they, who they really are and what they can do mm-hmm. for others yeah. as the key. Yeah. About who they are. Yes. Yeah. Um, not the right. Being shown the right level of respect in every moment. Uh, yeah. 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 So there, there may be stories, and I'm not thinking in this case about the biblical story, but there may be stories in which this guy is like it's manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, but others where it is for the sake of service mm-hmm. and comes out of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Is it yeah? Is it is it intrinsically wrong to sort of want to know what your friends say behind your back instead of like the peer? You know, whatever. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, who? Oh, okay. Can we do uh, Mar- Marty first, and then and then the qu- somebody raising their hand? Okay, one second. Marty first, and then Clint. Conversation with a neighbor of ours mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. He is um, he's an African man who is like very high up in Target, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he was saying we having dinner with his family, and he was saying how when his wife when he knows his wife is going to Target, he says don't tell anyone who you are because suddenly if they know you're my wife, everyone will behave. Better, you know, or he walks into something, but it's, but it's interesting because he talked a lot about his style of leadership, yeah. which was actually very uh, there was a real servant quality mm-hmm. to it. Because in contrast to uh, some of the people that were in authority in Target, they you know they find that people are cheating, 
know, mm-hmm. our employees are cheating, you know, whack them for it. His whole view was, if they're cheating, find out why. Are mm-hmm. they are they not happy? Mm-hmm. Are they not? And he had a very different attitude toward his employees yeah. for trying to trying to figure out how work could be better for them. Mm-hmm. How if they were tempted to do wrong things or to steal or whatever. You wanted to know why, but it was it was just it was it just struck me right away when he was giving examples mm-hmm. of, I mean he you know he was telling his wife to go into Scott's, don't let them know you're my, don't <laughs> tell them who you are when you when you go into Target. Yeah. Um, and um, you want to see how they behave yeah, normally under they, normal circumstances. Yeah. But but his his motives were and his leadership side was very was really intriguing to listen. To listen to because it was very much more, and it's one of the reasons why he's kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted because he's actually been very good for Target hmm. because he's very good for the employees. He actually yeah. cares, cares about the employees. Awesome. Um, let's go with Mr. Clint here. I'm just going to turn your mic on. Oh, I think you have to unmute yourself, Clint. Can you hear? Go ahead. Hi. Hi. I mean, you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2, and uh, in verse 6, it uh, mentions Jesus not, um, you know, just not grasping his equality with God. Mm-hmm. Chapter 2 of Philippians. Well, in my own personal life, applying these concepts to my life, that, that doesn't apply to me. But mm-hmm. the things and these three personages that you represented that I can apply are the self-sacrifice. The, uh, the uh, passage you read, I believe from Tolkien, that mentioned how representing truth is more important than actually seeing a positive income outcome in, in the long run. Oh, you, do you mean when he, he chooses to, to try to run and save his companions who've been kidnapped, having, having no idea whether it would actually succeed or not, but it, it was the right thing to right. do. Yeah, yeah. So this is where uh, I can apply those principles in my own life. Mm-hmm. Could you expound more on that, 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 that idea that um, just basic obedience without a guarantee of the outcome mm. would be um, what these three personages, the two characters and the true Christ, all represented uh, by their humility, but also by the way they they lived. Hmm. Yeah, there's three really different characters, though. <laughs> um, can I go back to something you said at the very beginning of your of your question there that that um, you you cannot relate to. Paul's words about Christ not not considering equality with God something to be grasped. Uh, do you mean by that that uh, that's not something I ever really have to think about because I've never been equal to God? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> is that is that what you mean? Yeah. I guess the the question is, what does Paul mean when he says, because the whole introduction to that passage, Paul is saying, have the same mind that Christ had. So Paul is offering that 
those words about Christ, which I think is a, is a, some sort of hymn. Uh, he's, he's offering those, the description of what Jesus did as an example to us to have the same mind that he had. It's not that, it's not that any of us are, are, will be in the position of being God and, and having to do what he did, obviously, but, but learn from his humility. And the fact is, what, what is sin and pride and all the things we actually are guilty of? It's trying to grasp equality with God. That's what it is. And so um, if, if God himself did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, I think this is, this is part of the, the power of that passage. Like, who are we when we worship idols? Who are we when we try to become little gods ourselves? Um, and and the, the whole drift of that passage is like, the, God himself emptied himself to serve f- for the life of other people. Uh, we're supposed to have that same sort of um, attitude of mind when it comes to interacting with people who are equal to us. <laughs> equal image bearers of God um, uh, putting other people's needs ahead of our own and, and so I think I think that that why none of us will share an identity with Jesus he is absolutely a model in every way um, yeah um, the your your question later about uh Obedience when the outcome isn't guaranteed. I'm sorry, I'm looking down at this picture right here. I, I should be looking at this camera. Um, <clears throat> I, I do. I think that that is that is part of just the hard the hard thing that it is to be to be a disciple of Christ. Um, we we are often in situations where we have to we have to do what is what is right according to God without any guarantee that it's going to benefit us greatly, at least in the moment. Um, and that's what that passage from the screw tape letters is really about. It's, it's about, this is, um, one of the ways that God is forming us into the type of people he wants us to be is by, um, not actually removing his presence from us, but the perception of his presence from us. (laughs) I think sometimes God feels distant to many of us. Um, and, uh, it's not a it's not a fun lesson to learn, but oftentimes that is the way we grow when we learn how to be obedient to God, even when He feels distant, even though even when we're not rewarded with some overwhelming emotional sense that, of of goodness and and peace. Um, and so, I think what what you're getting at, I think, is just a little bit of a um, the 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 challenge, which I think is a challenge for everybody to have what we know to be true, uh, allowing those, the things we know to be true to critique our state of mind, to critique our emotions sometimes, to, 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 to create sort of a ballast for us to come back to what is, what is true. Um, yeah. Dick. I'm still stuck on Esther's question. Okay, so we're going back to Esther's question. So, so Esther a few minutes ago asked a question, is it, is it ever is it wrong to to these stories about disguise? Is it is it uh, is there an element of the deception or the dishonesty about it that's that's wrong or unfair? I think manipulative is the word. manipulative is the yeah okay. I, I think probably yes, but I, I, I tend to think that, that in the Bible there's a, there's a 
permissiveness to using this to undeceive people's self-deceptions. Hmm. In other words, there's a, there's a freedom of, of people in the Bible. To, I can't give you a lot of examples, but, but, but uh, to to speak in, in a way to them, to catch them, that they might see themselves. I mean, certainly Nathan telling the parable to David yeah. did not spell it all out what he was doing when he initiated that conversation. But he nailed it. Yeah. And, and, and escaped with his own life, too, only because he done it in a parable rather than surprised him uh, directly. Mm-hmm. In all I think of the prophet Micaiah, who was uh, called by Ahab to tell, tell me what whether they're going to win this battle or not, Micaiah said, he knows perfectly well that 700 prophets will all say, oh yes, you'll win, you'll be whatever, and he's fine. He knows that he's going to get clobbered, he's going to get killed. And and so Micaiah stands up and and gives exactly the untruth. Uh, You'll be fine. Be great. Go ahead. But he he says it in such a mocking tone. Mm -hmm. Ahab, I think, says... Man, I, I wanted to really tell the truth. And, uh, and of course, that's just what he didn't want, but he did want. He did yeah. want he did want. Ahab wants the truth to be what he wants to hear. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's the hard thing. The truth, what's going to happen. So I think there's a lot of freedom. Some of Jesus' parables, the parable of vineyard, they wouldn't have, they, they concluded at the end, this is, ooh, he told this against us. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. You know, he, they didn't realize this. Uh, as he went through the parable. So I think there's a lot of leeway there to mm-hmm. draw people and, and then there's the gotcha kind of a, <laughs> of, of a, of a revelation. Yeah. So it's subverting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very subverting. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's uh, very much what Jesus is doing. And, and again, it's a little bit different. It's interesting, Jesus didn't just spring his revelation on but he he referred back to Old Testament passages that were telling them. That they knew, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that what he does with Psalm 110, yeah. how could it be that, uh, that, that David could call the Messiah uh, his son yeah. and also his Lord? Yeah. But mm-hmm. it couldn't happen. Uh, and yet the only way it could possibly happen is that the Messiah was both God mm-hmm. and the human being. A, des- a descendant of David, yeah. David. yeah. Uh, and so there's all sorts of things that, that uh, Jesus opened up for them to see that already had been revealed about, yeah. about how he was going to come, yeah. which is intriguing. So preview of Aragorn's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> up to. Yeah. I, I love the, uh, I think it's right, I mean, so much of Jesus' teaching is, it's sort of set up and surprise attack. Yeah. But you don't, you don't tell people you're going to surprise attack them. Yeah. It sort of defeats the purpose of it. <laughs> is that does that constitute deception? Like, it, it, I don't I don't think so. I mean, it, it, I mean, maybe in the most technical sense, you could say you're misleading somebody, but but it's in order that they would see the truth yeah. to their benefit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to disguise. I mean. Distract, take the distraction away in order for the person to hear the message. Mm-hmm. And there's no yep. other way of that doing that. And in fact, it was funny because Marty, you just mentioned Target, and I was thinking of Target. Before you said it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always thinking about Target. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking of it because I used to wear a red jacket when I on one of my jobs. Mm-hmm. And I'd go to Target on the way home, 
buy two things and we'll leave. And, and I noticed when I wore the red jacket, <laughs> there was this tension. And I was like, what's going on? And I was like, well, it's a long start. Maybe it's a different store. It's like happened that day, whatever. You know, the store. And then I noticed when I didn't wear the red jacket, they were normal. <laughs> and then, uh-huh. at one point on the third visit, when I had the red jacket again, I, said, I stopped someone and I said, um, it's strange because everybody's staring tonight, and they said, you know, it's the red jacket. <laughs> and I went, oh. <laughs> they thought I was uh, a supervisor. Like management. Management yeah. coming in to check on them. But, of course, what, would I wear a jacket? Probably that's red. Maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know their policies. But it was interesting because they couldn't hear my question when I was looking for something because they were so focused on the jacket. <laughs> how do I How do I answer rightly? How do I answer me? <laughs> never even dawned on me. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I, I mentioned people wear a red jacket sometimes. But it was a real red jacket. Really Did it have a big bullseye in the front? Because that's it. <laughs> no, but actually, I I ended up um, a couple times when I say somebody said I'm not with, I'm not with Target. You, know, <laughs> the you can relax. So I was my behavior was getting modified because <laughs> I didn't want them upset. Yeah. It's kind of like the secret secret shoppers at, at stores. Yeah. Like, like their their job is to go in and ask questions of employees and like and, and see does the, does the does the employee at the grocery store take me to the item that I asked for and do they do they recommend another item that might go well with it and all these things that employees have been taught to do and say you know the companies companies will send in secret shoppers right. to see if they're actually for doing me, it for me to get my message through I had to just take away the distraction yes yeah, yeah. and I was thinking yeah well this is just a very obvious thing. I was thinking at the time interesting any other Comments, questions, Sarah. Yeah. Um, I've just been thinking that there's a, a counterpart or kind of a foil to this theme in uh, the Emperor's New Clothes mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. and uh, I've just been trying to like, remember some of the details of that. But you know, there you have like a very selfish, vain yeah. leader yeah. who needs to be exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Rather than Taking on a costume to disguise, you know. Uh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, that a ruler is naked, parading through the town. Yeah. Um, so. And it takes the little kid pointing it out to make everybody realize he's just a fool. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody is yeah, bought right. into the to, to the well, to the lie. They're like, well, "This is a really yeah. expensive yeah. article of clothing he's wearing. This must be the new thing." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great story. It's really interesting. Christina, just going to go back to what you were saying, Dick, about how uh, part of the effect is to help someone become undeceived of their self-deception, and I think a, an effect of what happens <coughs> when you recognize the concealed king mm. is it's immediately humbling. Yeah, because there's this <coughs> of oh, I missed him. Like he was right here and I missed yes, him. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think that humbling effect is really interesting um, because it mm. does then kind of put the person in a position of um, indebtedness to us. Mm-hmm. Maybe indebtedness is the wrong word, but in a more humble posture, ready to receive mm-hmm. something, receive forgiveness, receive um, honor if what they've done has been honorable. But yeah. it's 
think that posture shift is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. connected to what you're saying about when you're undeceived with self-deception, that's immediately humbling because you or see your fault. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it should be immediately humbling. Yeah. Something you were certain of a minute ago is now shown to be totally false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like a moment in the Lord of the Rings films, not in the book. Yeah. When Boromir dies. Yeah. And recognizes Aragorn. Yeah. Like my brother, my captain, my king. Yeah. When he had just betrayed. Yeah. Betrayed the fellowship. It's yeah. Moments like that where there's a, a sense of humility. Yes. That comes yeah. with the recognition. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Just think that I'm sure there's lots of examples in the in the Gospels of that very thing. Even even I'm just thinking of Peter uh, in the boat before he's become one of the disciples, and Jesus tells him to set out in the lake. And for 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 this catch, he's been fishing all night, and he's like, "You maybe I read the tone into it a little bit, but I'm like, uh, listen, buddy, I've been fishing all night. You know, like I'm the fisherman, you're not. You know, just do it." And so he does it, and then, and then, uh, it's not, his response is not what one might expect. Oh my gosh, how did you do that? Oh my gosh, you, do you want to start a business? Or, oh my gosh, like, it's, depart from me, I'm a man, of, I'm a sinful man. So it's, it's, he witnesses a miracle. He doesn't, he doesn't really, presumably he's listened to Jesus speak before that, but, he witnesses a miracle, a show of Jesus' power, and in his response is an awareness of his own moral whack. Um, same with Isaiah in, in Isaiah six. He witnesses God. There's not, not no conversation has even taken place. God didn't say, you know, you're a sinner, Isaiah. It's just the presence of God, the presence of, of holiness, and, and Isaiah says, "Woe, woe to me." Uh, he's aware of his own sin and the sin of his people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess um, a question too is like, um, maybe. Well, I guess the question is, how much is it a disguise? Of which it, you know, get sensitive. Obviously, is because you know that is God among men. Obviously, so there is a sense of it. But also, I mean, I guess there's a blindness from our part as well. Mm. Hmm. Great. I think. I mean, I'm just thinking about this because. Um, you know, passages like, you know, those who accept the light, or those who love the light, and those mm-hmm. who do not, those who love the darkness. Mm-hmm. So, there, I, I guess, it, it's almost, it, I don't know, it kind of goes both ways, because it's like you said, it's like, it is a disguise, but it's also the ultimate revelation. Yeah. So, in a sense, it's like, we don't see him because we are blind. Yeah. But he, it's not really, he has a mask on as much as we have. Right. Scales. Right. Right. And, yeah, I know, yeah. it's almost like he's, yeah, did he could you know is the incarnation for the atonement only, or also like is the incarnation all, does it also come along with the atonement you know revelation? Mm-hmm. Like, where I'm showing myself mm-hmm. to you in a way that you can understand. Uh, yes, to that last comment. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it's not just for the atonement. I mean, it's, it's he comes to to teach people to show people what it is. Uh, to be a human being, truly. He's, rest- he's restoring. This is part of, I had to cut out a big section. This is actually shorter than it was supposed to be. Um, but, uh, Jesus comes to live a life of perfect obedience to his Father that then he gives us credit for. <laughs> this, is, this is part of the exchange. You know, he takes on our sin and then, and then 
gives us credit for his own righteousness. And so his whole life is is uh, a redemptive act. It's, he didn't just come in order. He didn't take on flesh just so that he could die. Um, and 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 so many of his words are preparing people to be aware f- of their need for his death. He's un- he's undermining people's self confidence. He's undermining their confidence in, uh, particularly confidence in, in law keeping as a as the way to to please God. And uh, and so he's. Yeah, I mean, John the Baptist is preparing the way, you know, so that the people will be ready to receive Jesus' message, and then Jesus is preparing the way for people to get ready to receive his his death. <laughs> Resurrection is something they actually need, for sure. Yeah, but you're right. The, the whole thing about self deception is really interesting because it's it, it gets it gets confusing to me in some of the passages that, like what Jesus says about parables. You know, I I I, uh, I speak in parables so that you know. People will hear but not understand, and um, some people will understand. He explains the parables to some people, but but what is that? I mean, the I think to me the sense I have is that he's speaking in a parable, which if you are dead set and opposed to 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 seeing the truth, you don't want you don't want you don't want to acknowledge who Jesus is. The parable is just going to be nonsense to you, and you're going to walk away, uh, perhaps even further from the truth, and it's a judgment. Um, whereas if you are open, if you are seeking the Lord, you're going to mull the parable over and you're going to think about it and it's going to work on you. And actually it will illuminate the truth (laughs) to you. Um, yeah. Joshua? Uh, more a comment, not as much a question. Um, thank you for this. This, yeah. is, this is really rich. But, um, yeah, it made me think of the um, well before, but also your comment about self-deception. Um, yeah, before Jesus is declared the Son of God uh, by the centurion, mm-hmm. like he's he's mocked, and yeah. the way he's mocked is he's mocked. They put a crown on his head, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they bow down to him. Yeah. A purple robe on him, and they mock him as the king of the Jews. Yeah. It's like, as the reader of the story, like <clears throat> you know, some you know many things that characters don't know. Yeah. But like, yeah, on Jesus' head should be a crown. Yeah. And like all people, you know, Paul says all will will um, confess mm-hmm. his Lord mm-hmm. and kneel before him. Yeah. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And yeah, there's just this ironic. They're mocking him, but mm-hmm. they're actually. They don't know. There's accuracy to yeah. I mean, they really, they really don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, and in a way, they're. I mean, it's not appropriate response, but it, mm-hmm. it is. Like, there's something about about that, and something, you know, thinking about Jesus' humility that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus knows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what does he know that these guys don't know? But anyway, like, yeah, that, in, it's like that is his moment mm. of showing the sort of, the sort of king, uh, that, that he is. Yeah. And it's like he's not, it's, it's just to this little group of soldiers that are mocking him. It's yeah. like no one, no, cause I think they're in the, 
they're in a, like a little courtyard. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, it's quite mm. something in Mark's like, gospel. The mockery of kingship. I just, you just think of what that, who knows what's going on in Jesus' mind, but he knows he's actually the king. And to, and to have that be the, the source yeah. of mockery. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like I mean, right around when he speaks to Pilate. Right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, and it's, in some ways, like, like you said, there's sort of, st- they're in a totally twisted and wrong way saying the truth. It, it's 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 a little bit more of an extreme example, uh, but but to me there's a similar thing going on in Palm Sunday when he's coming into the city. It's deeply ironic to me. I, I, you're just like, oh man, he's there's all these people saying, "Yay, you're here, <laughs> Hosanna," which means save us. You know, blessed are you. you know, come, he's coming into the city. You know, and. Very few or none of them really understand what kind of king he is and what he's coming to do. And yet Jesus does not silence them. In fact, when people tell him, tell him to shut up, this is, you know, it's causing a stir. He says, you know, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones are going to sing out loud. No, no, he's receiving their, their praise. But they have no idea what they're talking about. And they're offering it to him with total, totally wrong impressions about who he is. And yet, and yet he accepts it in this weird way. Like he accepts it and goes into the city, and and um, yeah, I have a hard time getting my mind around around that. Um, he, it's almost like he takes their words at face value and credits them with meaning them yeah. properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like Aragorn's response to Frodo that you yeah. quoted. Hmm. Uh, which part of the? Uh, about um, um, just how. Oh, I would have liked to be have, have trusted on my own account rather than. Yeah. 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 Trying to think what the part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Like the fair and foul. Oh, the fair and foul. Yeah. 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 He. he um, They've received this letter that that sort of proves that Aragorn is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And Aragorn, I didn't know about the letter, but I was kind of hoping that I could convince you to trust me just just from talking to me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but my my looks are against me. Mm-hmm. Is that the part you're talking about, or is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andy. Um, this isn't thought out all the way, so mm-hmm. maybe there's an obvious answer, but. Um, I was thinking, like, in every scenario you mentioned, like, the king sort of owns the narrative, right? And it's to the end of, like, when I reveal my identity, it's going to be um, obvious and it's going to prevail. Hmm. Uh, but there's still, right up into the point of revelation, there's, like, an opportunity... You're sort of holding all these people in your hand, right? Because like you're in control. Hmm. And you, you not, if you're the you're the king, you the, being yeah, the king, yeah, yeah. Right? like there's an opportunity to meet that revelation mm-hmm. with grace or with judgment. Mm-hmm. And the satisfying thing is with judgment. It's like you know, yeah, you, you know, prove them wrong. Uh, <laughs> and I guess that's sort of like the Odysseus mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. But then the Aragorn example would seem to be met much more with grace. Mm-hmm. 
And with Jesus, we see that's met with grace. Mm-hmm. And my question, that may be too loaded or whatever, mm. I feel like we're still in that situation awaiting Jesus' second coming. Mm-hmm. But it almost seems like what we're expecting is for that revelation, that second revelation to be met with judgment. Mm-hmm. Why is that not consistent with what we see in Jesus? Mm-hmm. Like, why is now it met with judgment instead mm-hmm. of met with grace? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a a question about what what is the nature of the second coming of Jesus? Like, what what um, I think that there's um, there's there's no getting around the fact that while while Jesus is the Savior, he's also the Judge of the world, and uh, and there's a a period of time. No one knows how long this period of time will be, but a period of time in which we are free to come to him. <laughs> and the the language that Jesus himself uses about his return, it's it's not gonna be like like Christmas <laughs> where this little baby is born and comes into the world humbly and unnoticed except by a few lowly people. I mean his language about his second coming is you see it. The whole world's going to see it. It's going to be a momentous, earth-shattering event in which um, there will be judgment, uh, but there will be there will be mercy to those people who have who have relied on his mercy, um, and so ju- judgment is it's not a it's not a um, a pleasant thing to think about. It's not, but it's also not a contradiction to. To who Jesus is, I mean his his words. He, people often point out the fact that Jesus says more about hell than anybody else. Although people don't like to think about Jesus talking about hell, because we like to have this image of Jesus as just being all all about love and acceptance and embrace. But he's he's coming with the truth. He's coming with the truth, and and um, that actually, um, sin is a problem before the Lord. And he, and, and he comes in order to die for that, so that, so that, so that um, there is such a thing as mercy. And yet, if people reject that and refuse to accept that and don't want anything to do with him, then uh, there is judgment. And so it's coherent. It, it is a contrast to, to... I mean, who knows what the final judgment will be like? <laughs> no idea, but... it. It seems like it, there is a, a drastic contrast in the way that we're expecting Jesus to return. Uh, contrast to, to, how, to how, what we read about him in the in the Gospels, but it's not a departure from from what he said all along is, is going to happen. Um, and there's a way in which the fact that there's a final judgment is actually really good news. Actually, <laughs> I mean, terrible, terrifying, but for people who um, who trust in the Lord and have been victims of terrible injustice that have never really been addressed. <laughs> the idea that there's a judgment is actually not this terrible, traumatizing thing as much as it is a comfort. That, that like, actually, there's a, this is the reckoning we were talking about. And in a sense, Jesus, 
Jesus disguise disguise of the incarnation coming he's giving he's giving the world an incredible chance to turn back to the father but the last judgment is the reckoning <laughs> that's the reckoning um uh, i don't this that is an inadequate answer but that, does anyone have anything else they want to say about <laughs> christina Resurrection of the dead. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Both of them have yeah. Um, but I do see in that kind of first to second shift that the prophets may have anticipated happening all at once. It's yeah. Like actually, there's mercy built into the yeah. gap. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like so, the, the prophetic texts in the Old Testament are re- referring to both the mercy and the judgment of God. And I think that there was, you know, an expression. The, you know the day of the Lord, like the great and terrible day of the Lord, which I think in in, in the minds of people of, of people, it was this is when God is going to come back, judge all the nations <laughs> except us, and uh, and everything will be set right again. Whereas, uh, yeah, look at what you, the actual plan of God is it are, is those things, but extended over over uh, over a lot of time and and a lot of opportunity given to repent and return to him and um, yeah think of the extraordinary phrase the wrath of the lamb mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but that's there in Revelation mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. yeah mm. Joshua did you have your hand up uh, no okay no. I think Clint does yes yeah. hi Clint <laughs> hi hi Getting back to your three people, uh, Odysseus and Strider and Christ, uh, Odysseus had to see a day of reckoning, which he wasn't sure was going to happen. He was very doubtful. And also, Strider, maybe it looked like at times that was going to pan out. Yep. You think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane mm. and his prayer that his, his, um, Hoping for another alternative to Christ, to, to God's plan, mm-hmm. and uh, even the possibility that that one's going to pan out in mm-hmm. a sense. I know God's uh, omniscient, and He He knows, and His no plan of His will be thwarted. But still, God had Christ there in His humanity, experiencing uh, not only really some doubt but some apprehension about. About things working out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw me those three, three parallels, yeah. not, you know, three, three ideas represented. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really interesting idea. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, in, in one sense, it ties into the, the story of, of Jesus' temptation from the devil, that last temptation. You can, you can have all the nations, just worship, worship me now, you can have all the nations, you don't, you don't have to go to the cross. This is another, this is escape hatch over here. And, um, I think Jesus knows perfectly well that that's not the plan, and he's determined to remain obedient to his Father, and he knows that <clears throat> to avoid the cross is, um, uh, would would be to derail the entire plan of salvation. Uh, it would be to, to bail on the rescue plan. Um, and so, I think I think Jesus is is well aware of that on one level. But then, in in the moment in Gethsemane, when he's he's faced with the imminent his imminent arrest, it's all downhill for him from here from this point on. Uh, he's he's aware of what he's going to be facing, and I think maybe even more than his fear of physical pain and torture, he's, he's, he's anticipating the father turning his back on him and becoming, becoming sin for the, for the life of the world. And I, um, I feel like you see in this an existential moment of just like, Oh, there's gotta be another way, <laughs> please. Uh, and yet he's still, He's still master of himself enough to say, "But it's your will that's going to happen here, not mine." Um, and so it's hard to. Know. I mean, I guess it's one one aspect of the question is what's what's the nature of Jesus' temptation really? Um, is he really tempted to bail on this plan? Um, can he really be tempted because he's God? <laughs> and. I, I'm sort of the, of the mind. I mean, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being tempted in every way and yet not sinning. So, so that implies that there's actually a difference between sin and temptation. Jesus, Jesus, I think, did experience temptation, which means that he considered as a real option uh, abandoning the plan, and yet he does not. <laughs> um, he's not exempt from the torment of, of temptation just because he's God. In this moment, um, and yet he is the perfect human being who proved who, who who chooses obedience to to God the Father in every moment. Um, so that doesn't really answer your question, but it sort of like circles around your question a little bit. Um, I I think I think there's Jesus has more of a confidence in the outcome. Than either Odysseus or or Strider ever can have. I, I, I think the uh, another passage in Hebrews is like, "For the joy set before him, he endured the agony of the cross." And so, like, he knows actually that the nations are going to be hit. The joy set before him is really the joy of having his people back again, <laughs> having having us uh, as part of God's family again. And it's the joy of that that makes the agony of the cross something he faces. Um, and so he, he, he knows the outcome. But I think Gethsemane is, is just the, the existential torment of anticipating what he has to go through. I think more than actually, well, I don't know. It's very...
Everybody? Yeah, yeah. Good to see you, Clint. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you. Anybody else? Marty. Backing up something we said earlier, but but um, just think of how incredibly difficult it is for us to to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. How you know how our nature if if we feel like we're being falsely accused or falsely people are thinking untrue false things about us, mm-hmm. we are so um, so desperate to to defend ourselves mm-hmm. to, to make sure that we are understood really understood. And I, I just think that's one of the most amazing things about the humility of Jesus mm-hmm. and our Lord as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just to be, to out of love and service, be willing to bear this unbelievable misunderstanding, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be to be not recognized, Jesus to be come to His own and not be known, and you know, it's just such. Human nature to mm. want to shake people and say, "Don't you know who I am?" You know, or don't you realize that this is the truth about me? Mm-hmm. You know, this, this defensiveness. Yeah. It's just an amazing, incredible humility and patience yeah. of, of of God and yeah. His love to um, mm-hmm. put up with that. For so, for so but, but also, but also to me, I think there's there's moments where you're like, Jesus knows that. Failure is part of the plan, in a sense. Jesus knows that, like, the plan is to be condemned and and killed, and and that's maybe an an, an element of what allows him to to be silent, you know, in the face of these ridiculous accusations, um, being accused of idolatry when you're God. You know, it's just like, <laughs> um, and yeah, but but that's the that's the path. That's the that's the road to Calvary. It's it's you are going to be, uh, um, yeah. But by 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 any standard of successful ministry, it has to fail hard. <laughs> You know, for this for this plan to actually be kind of the failure is part of the plan, right? Before there's victory, uh, and I just think of how difficult it is for me to ever acknowledge any kind of failure as being part of a plan. <laughs> failure is when my plans fall apart. What do you mean? There's a you know, yeah. Well, maybe we should wrap it up. Yeah, thank you.